Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Struggle Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have a fantastic roundtable for you with three doctors. We have Dr. Wolf, Dr. Pack, and Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. And we are going over a recent study that really kicked up a storm over on social media, and for good reason to some extent, because it was pretty crazy. They had people training their quads up to 52 sets within a week, and these individuals saw the best quad growth. And so it really put to question, hey, how much volume is really junk volume? Does junk volume exist? But some people had criticisms. Was their measurement of muscle hypertrophy good enough? Could have there been some confounders? These individuals were using an RAR for the majority of their sets. How good were they in kind of recognizing that RAR? And much more, actually. We talk about kind of rest times for hypertrophy. We talk about, hey, how about eccentrics and uh, tempo? How does that play a role? And also referencing the greater literature at large and then ending with the practical recommendations for you, the person who is trying to grow maybe as much muscle as possible, or you're just trying to grow. Kind of what are the practical recommendations for you? So we're going to dig into that. But before we do, just a quick word from today's sponsor. Guys, have you heard of blood flow restriction training, maybe BFR or occlusion training or even katsu training? It was first introduced by Dr. Sato in the 1960s. And since the 1990s, there's been hundreds of peer reviewed papers that have come out to show the efficacy for muscle hypertrophy and other means, and also the safety of it. And essentially what you can do is occlude a muscle so you can wrap it, tie it up, train it with really light loads, as little as 20% of your one rep max, and get equal hypertrophy to your traditional moderate to heavy weight training that we typically do. And so the bottom line is you can use light loads, generate lots of hypertrophy just like we can with heavier loads. Now, personally, I have experimented with BFR multiple times, but I had been put off by it for a long time because the pieces of equipment out there on the market just weren't very suitable. I'd use tourniquets. They were just a bit too thin and flimsy to really occlude my arms properly. I used uh, knee wraps to try and occlude my legs and they just lacked standardization and were really cumbersome and not very comfortable. And so this is where Saga Fitness come in with their BFR cuffs. They are perfectly sized. They fit supremely well, They're actually very comfortable. And then you can actually use their mobile app to select the pressure perfectly and standardize that every single time. And these have just been a complete game changer for BFR training for me. And they reminded me of the, the pain and joy of uh, blood flow restriction training. So the way I would use blood flow restriction training with myself and my clients is first of all, just for some variation and novelty. There is nothing quite like a pump that is generated through occluding a muscle and then training it for multiple sets. I would also use it in scenarios where I particularly wanted to generate a lot of cell swelling or metabolites. And then finally, a really obvious one, but an important one is the fact that you can use such light loads. So if you do have any niggles or injuries across your physique, you can occlude the muscle and use really light loads, which will probably take pressure off those joints and connective tissue, allow you to still train the muscle and generate hypertrophy in a condition where otherwise you might not be able to. So if this sounds something that might be interesting to you that you wanna try, comes highly recommended for myself having tried it. And I think the guys at Saga are doing fantastic work, you can actually get a exclusive discount with the code revive stronger. All you need to do is head to saga.fitness and you can go and use that code, get 20% off and uh, enjoy some gnarly, gnarly BFR training. And without further ado, let's get into the chat. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall. And today I have a very exciting round table for you. I have uh, three doctors in the house um, to congratulate 
Dr. Wolf, who has been working and pursuing his PhD for a while, as I, I know many of the listeners will know. So we have Milo Wolf, we have Dr. Pack, and we have Dr. Brad Schoenfeld on the show. And we're going to be discussing quite a interesting paper that took kind of social media by storm a little bit. I think uh, Milo and uh, Pack also kind of uh, ignited that a little bit. And I guess you were expecting it, but also it's been shared, I think, by Lane Norton now. The Mass Research Review just recently kind of reviewed it by Mike Zordos. And I, I think Lane Norton actually just released a video today. So it's been making the rounds on social media. And uh, it's going to be great talking to you guys about this today to kind of dig into some of those aspects. And actually, uh, the data-driven strength guys also did a really cool post on it too. So yeah, everyone's been uh, giving their two cents. So now we get to have a long-form discussion about it, which I'm excited about. So the paper title itself, I'm just going to summarize the paper for you listeners. Uh, it was effects of different weekly set progressions on muscular adaptations in trained males. Is there a dose-response effect? And that was by Enos et al., uh, they wanted to investigate if volume cycling was beneficial, but also there hasn't been that much literature looking at uh, data with 25 sets per week. There was three groups uh, doing different volume amount. Each of those groups had about 10 participants each. And they're trained individuals, as I said, so they had at least a 1.5 times body weight squat, at least two years of consistent four times per week training. And within this study, they also did a really cool thing and accounted for previous training volume, which I think is probably quite important, uh, having kind of uh, read through it and kind of heard people's takes and also uh, from what we know about volume and uh, the impact of hypertrophy there. So they had a washout period and a familiarization phase. The study itself then was, or the training period was 12 weeks long. One group maintained 22 sets per week on the quads. And one group added four sets every other week, got to 42 sets by the end. Another group, they added six sets every other week, got to 52 sets by the end. And that was split between two sessions per week, which were supervised. And they were training hard, so two RAR for every set, and then the last one to failure. And they split this uh, evenly between the squat, leg press, and leg extensions. So very ecologically valid exercise selection for sure. And kind of the split's pretty decent there too. And uh, there was no significant differences in hypertrophy, but I mean, that would have been boring, right? Uh, you guys wouldn't have all been kind of posting about it. Uh, but when you kind of dig deeper into there, they did say more volume did lead to slightly better gains. And the data did show a dose response relationship between volume and hypertrophy. So with that kind of preamble out the way, I don't know if any of you guys had like any summary points or any bits from it that you kind of want to talk through. Otherwise I can go to like the first question. Nope. Cool. All right. We can dig into the first question there. That's great. I'm, I did a, an all right job summarizing it. So uh, the first question I had was uh, regarding the washout period, kind of saying it is two weeks enough. I guess it's, I don't know if that's an answerable question. Uh, so yeah, do we think that the two week washout period was enough? And I, the kind of second part to that question was how much does not taking into trainees previous training volume impact results so that's kind of something i was referring to before not not many research has tended to do that dr dr wolf i can see you nodding so i'm going to pass it to you uh, so from the evidence i'm aware of you do see resensitization of uh muscle growth pathways like mtor for example within about two weeks of training cessation to a pretty large extent depending on what paper you look at it can even be to what they consider like a total level Obviously, a lot of that research comes from rodents, so we're extrapolating from animal studies to human studies. But at the very least, two weeks should be a time frame we see some degree of uh, washout, or essentially that all participants should have had a similar background coming into the study, essentially. Um, 
Now, do I think that two weeks is enough to make up for all differences? No, but I do think that it's like, honestly, this study from a methodological standpoint, I think they did a lot of things right from having at least a washout period in there for two weeks, from measuring nutrition at various points about the study. And as you see, nutrition was pretty similar between the groups across the study to having a two-week baseline phase as well after the washout phase. Like a lot of steps were taken to make this a pretty robust study. Yes, it's one study. Yes, there's only 10 participants per study. Equally, there are other studies around which I think generally point in the same direction of higher volumes being better, right? Or at least the same as lower volumes for hypertrophy. And so I think the results have often been taken as uh, being, you know, impossible or as being completely out of context or out of whack with the other studies. When in reality, there have been previous studies looking at similar-ish volumes and that I found similar things. I do think this study has a few interesting components, like there's kind of layers to it. One layer is that they added volume week to week. They didn't just simply compare different constant volumes. So that could be a factor. They also looked at very high volumes. So for the last two weeks in the highest volume group, they were doing 52 sets of quads a week. Now, you could say maybe they saw more growth on account of functional overreaching, and maybe there's something there for hypertrophy. But then that gets into the question of, do we really have much evidence for that? I think this study is pretty complex, and you can interpret it in a variety of ways, depending on your perspective and approach and what you think is happening. But I do think that the two-week washout period was sufficient to at least resensitize them or get them to a similar baseline. Anything to add there, Pac or Brad, or you feeling happy with that? Good answer. Yeah, I would just add that um, you do see um, certainly some people. So when you're just going to give a certain amount of volume, you have a wide array of of uh, backgrounds coming in for the participants. These are trained subjects. Some have been working out with higher volumes and some with lower volumes. And I think accounting, trying to account for that is a good step. Uh, we didn't do, we carried out a study. We didn't do that. I, I think that would have added. That's a nice uh, piece. And look, I think th there was a study by D'Souza several years ago, which actually didn't show much difference between 12, 18, at least in hypertrophy, 12, 18, and 24 sets. But what they found was when they accounted for the previous training volume, that it actually did show a benefit to those who increased volume across the study. So if you're getting some people who were doing, let's say, 25 sets, and then they you're now this study was pretty high volumes across the board. But let's say you start out with 25 or 30 sets, and then you're going to scale back, could that have a negative effect? And vice versa, certainly I think on the other side, if you have someone that's doing a hit type routine, I know Pac uh, I will I guess talk about that, but Pac tried uh to uh, give this a go and he's been doing extremely low volume work and it's going to be really hard if you don't at least have a base uh, to build up to a certain volume. So I think as Milo, I think eloquently said it, um, was it enough? That's, uh, you know, that, it's subjective. I don't know, but I think at least was a good piece that I think added to the validity of the study. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think I've only... had my, my oh. two cents as well. Yeah, yeah, go for it, Pat. No, no, that, that was it. Uh, exactly oh. <laughs> what, 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 what Brad said in the end. The fact that they did um, at least try to account for that in one way is 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 positive. And yeah, I don't think it. we can say with certainty that it was, you know, the, the perfect way to make sure that there's no, uh, no co-founders uh, from their previous training affecting results. But um, it was definitely good that they included that. 
And real quick, uh, to touch on the notion of accounting for previous volumes and how that can influence hypertrophy in a given study, the jury is still relatively out on how that influences hypertrophy. There was a recent review paper by Hamilton colleagues, for example, where they looked at all the studies that tried to account for previous volumes going into the study to see whether, for example, increasing volume relative to your previous volume would increase hypertrophy, whether decreasing volume would reduce hypertrophy or cause you to lose muscle. And generally, effects are relatively mixed. So... I think it's good that they included it, just to be on the safe side, but equally, I'm not sure if it's um, a necessity, per se. Very interesting. Yeah, I know the, you, Milo, you spoke about the resensitization effect, and I know that's one that's kind of, it's a bit mixed in terms of how people feel about it, whether or not it's actually like an evidence-based suggestion, but I think the two weeks uh, seems to be what people hold is like, hey, two weeks is a pretty decent time to like bring volumes down and try and kind of focus on that lower volume and then like you said with the familiarization phase i, I don't think they really could have done much more uh, for this at least from what we know now so that's really cool to hear about and the next question uh, i'm going to pass over to you brad is to do with the ultrasound measurements which were taken 72 hours after the last workout and uh, i know there's some people who think that uh, the cell swelling and inflammation could therefore have impacted the results I feel actually quite strongly about that. I've seen some kind of views online where it's like, hey, it's completely, the the data should have been way after this. So how do you feel about that? Was 72 hours enough time to make sure that that didn't impact the results? In my opinion, the, any effects of swelling would be minimal. It would be highly unlikely, in my opinion, that that would have affected it. So several things here. Uh, swelling is generally the product of a novel stimulus uh, and a uh, another high intensity stimulus. It's magnified through eccentric overload. So super maximal eccentric work and newbies to training in general. Uh, neither of which, so the study in question used combined concentric eccentric actions at submaximal, you know, with roughly a 10 RM, which is 75% or so of one RM. So submaximal loads. Uh, where the eccentric was at the same level as the concentric, and they were resistance trained, pretty well trained individuals. If you if you look at their one uh, RM stats, I mean they're so minimum two years training experience. So just in that fact alone would say that you probably aren't going to get much damage. Now, volume would seem to have some effect on damage. It's really not been well studied in a submaximal. We have. Uh, some indications where you do a lot of uh, eccentric overload that can institute and more volume will tend to have greater damage. But some several things about that. There was a study uh, some years ago, a seminal study that looked at heavy eccentric overloads, a 110, 120% over one RM of just eccentric uh, training in untrained, completely untrained subjects, had massive uh, muscle damage and swelling. Uh, for roughly a week, lasted roughly a week. After one session, so one session of doing this, the exact same workout, the damage went down to a third. So there is a phenomenon called the repeated bout effect. And basically the body tries to adapt to a stimulus. If you keep giving the body a similar stimulus, it's going to get used to that stimulus and figure out a way so it's not going to experience damage, which would of course have negative effects on survival. Uh, if you're going back to our prehistoric lineage. Um, so to that end, um, there was a study by uh, by Damas, Felipe Damas, 2016. Uh, now, it wasn't huge volume. It was 
12 sets to failure per week, but it was untrained subjects. They looked at the time course of muscle damage. After 10 weeks, no evidence of, of any muscle damage, really zero. Um, so this, these were untrained newbie subjects. Uh, and, and they looked at Z-line streaming, which is direct, uh, one of the direct ways you assess muscle damage. There was a fairly recent study, 2021, I believe, by Chris Barakat, uh, Eduardo D'Souza's group, where they looked at echo intensity. They used ultrasound, which is an indicator. It's a, a, a metric for cell swelling. And these were trained subjects. They did nine sets of bicep curls to failure. And after 24 hours, there was no evidence of, uh, of muscle damage, of swelling in the muscle. So putting this all together, um, 72 hours. Now, if it was 24 hours, I would say there, there might be, you might get, be getting some latent damage. Generally, 48, 72 hours, there should not be any. And there's really no evidence in the literature that there is. Uh, I also want to, uh, if we can uh, take this a little further, some people are calling this sarcoplasm. I've seen on when Milo and Pac did the post, they're attributing it to sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. That this is not, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is not edema. So very important to understand. Sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is the um, accretion of, of non-contractile elements in the sarcoplasm. It could be T-tubules and, and other non-contractile elements. So anything basically besides actin, myosin, and titan. Um, now, proteins attract fluid. They're osmolites. They attract fluid into the muscle fiber, into the cell. So it's generally the muscle likes to maintain roughly a three to one ratio of fluid to protein. So yeah, you are going to get some uh, some concurrent fluid accretion as you build up these muscle these non-contractile proteins. But they seemingly would be just as permanent, if you will, as contractile proteins. Now maybe could some be more transient than others? It is not just a pump phenomenon or an edema phenomenon. So, and by the way, interestingly to that point, you could potentially attribute this to, I'm not saying it is, but I think at least speculatively, could this have something to do with sarcoplasmic hypertrophy? That's a, it was never studied here, but that's an interesting hypothesis. There is some preliminary evidence from Mike Roberts' lab, Cody Hahn uh, did the work that did show that higher volume uh, training does promote greater sarcoplasmic fraction, so greater accretion of sarcoplasmic proteins, uh, which to a bodybuilder would be great. How much of benefit is that to a strength athlete? That is questionable. Um, we, we can discuss that if if you like, but but I think for the purposes of this discussion, that could be, but that is not. That is separate from edema. I think that's really well answered and. Yeah, I think, I don't know, uh, you guys can all speak to this as well as advanced trainees who have been training a long time, like, and unless you do something very novel and new, it's pretty hard to make like a muscle very sore that lasts as long as maybe 72 hours. I guess some people get it in their hamstrings, like you said, heavy eccentric loading, that sort of thing. But in the quads, uh, like I have to do something kind of out there to have that level of edema, uh, sorry, muscle damage that lasts that long. Yeah. And by the way, so they were doing the same routine. So the exercises were not novel. It's usually that you'll see these differences with novel exercises. You do some different exercise, particularly long length. Um, I don't want to speak to that, but when you train at longer lengths, there uh, seems to be novel when you just do it new. But 
Now you could say, well, they were increasing their volume, and that I think is is a fair point. But it was two weeks of so basically four sessions of of that same volume, which to me repeated bad effect. Like I said, in untrained subjects with heavy eccentrics, the muscle damage goes down to a third after one one session. I just don't see that. And, and by the way. So I can't discount it. No, no one can completely discount it. But those who are making it sound like this is fait accompli, it's just silly. They're, they're obviously have an agenda uh, in something like that. So if you want to look at it, if you want to look at the data and you want to speculate, that's fine. But to me, I think that if you're, if you want to be honest and uh, and try to be unbiased, we don't have any evidence that that would be the case. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just uh, relied heavily on the the headline sort of uh, findings of the study and the number of 52 sets and sort of disregarded the fact that all groups started at 22 sets and then two groups gradually built up. It's not like they started at five sets and then all of a sudden found themselves doing, you know, 500% more volume. Um, so that's important as well to to note there. This was not a 52 sets per week study where they took a bunch of individuals and all of a sudden threw them in the in the pit of 52 sets of uh, quad uh, volume per week. And just to yeah. build on that, as far as the average volumes involved went, just so a listener knows, we're talking about the lowest volume group doing 22 sets per, for quads per week, the middle volume group or medium volume group doing 32 sets on average per week, the highest volume group doing 37 on average. So still high volumes, but it's not the 52 that a lot of people think it actually was. Yeah. And yeah. to build further on that, um, uh, joking aside, but to build further on that as far as like, squatting volume goes uh the highest the highest so the, the highest group had an average of i think 13 squat sets per week um because a lot of people also took this study and sort of um interpreted as they were doing 52 sets or 37 sets of squats per week uh where in reality they also did leg extensions and leg press yeah really well stated i think those are super important points where yeah if you just look at headlines you start to miss that and then you start jumping to conclusions which unfortunately people do which you definitely don't want to be doing so yeah really well explained guys uh the next question i had for you was participants doing all their sets at 2rir and i saw this as a criticism uh, of essentially saying like hey these people were they really achieving a 2rir how good are people are assessing their kind of reps and reserve here and then they were doing it to volitional failure like hey people some people don't like volitional failure versus kind of making sure people me mechanically fail i don't know if concentrically fail uh so i don't know if anyone has any kind of feelings towards people's ability to do that milo it sounds like you might or looks rather <laughs> yes i do so i guess there's a few layers here number one Generally, people are pretty accurate at gauging reps and reserve within lab conditions. So when people are asked inside a lab, hey, take the set to failure and tell us after five reps, for example, how many more reps you can do. On average, when they're asked to predict how many more reps they can do at various points throughout a set across various studies, on average, they're off by less than one rep. In other words, on average, they underestimate how many more reps they can do by one. So if they say they can do four more, typically they can do closer to five. That's the first layer. The second layer is, in this study, all training was supervised by a strength and conditioning professional. So if you do think that maybe, you know, if it's unsupervised or if you don't have anyone watching you, it's easier to maybe not train as hard. In this case, training was also supervised. Let me give the caveat that I was not there in person to see the training, but I have general experience of what people train like in labs. My hunch is that training was still pretty close to failure. It may not have been exactly true reps in reserve. 
And when they called it evolutional failure, it may not have been concentric failure, right? A lot of the time. But I do think that generally it was close enough to failure. And more importantly, I don't think there was a huge reason for a difference between groups such that that would cause an issue in terms of still seeing, okay, do higher volumes lead to more hypertrophy than lower volumes? So absolutely, don't take the results here literally. Don't say, okay, well, I'm going to do 52 sets a week and do all sets, groups, and reserve except for the last one. That's not what you should do, right? And if that's not what you're doing, you shouldn't care too much anyways if there were perfectly a two reps in reserve versus, say, three on average. Yeah, which was also mentioned by the authors on the paper. So if you look closely, they said approximately two reps in, in reserve. And exactly what, what uh, Milo said, even if they were slightly off, um, I don't I don't see how that changes how we view the the results of this study. Yeah, and I'd add, uh, certainly I completely agree on the RIR uh, aspect. And as far as the set to failure, I would say that most probably were training to failure. I pack in Milo can attest from being in our lab, in our studies, we have all sets to failure, generally speaking, and and our and most of our subjects go to failure. I mean, they're they are failing, but there are subjects, and we note this in the papers that uh, they will give up. You could just tell they probably could have done another rep or two. But what I would say is they are all close to failure, uh, where you might get some that just give up mentally uh, rather than muscularly. Uh, the subjects, generally speaking, when when they're supervised and when you have someone pushing them, they're going to train to failure. I was not in the lab, as Milo said, so I don't know. I'm assuming that they're, uh, it, of course, is dependent on the lab and the research assistants that are pushing them the way they're supposed to. But I can just go by what the write-up was. I would assume that they did what they said they did. Yeah. And to to add on that, and I wanted to mention that example about the lab specifically, the AMD lab. Um, in Max Coleman's paper, the, the deload study, uh, where failure was again defined as volitional failure, there were a lot of people that did indeed uh, fail. But I think there is a, sort of a misconception about what lab conditions actually look like as far as training effort and encouragement goes. Uh, when you're there with one, two, and in some cases, even three research assistants per per person, at least in our case, I'm, you know, in that case, it may just be one person overseeing it. Uh, it's, it's an environment where you're actively monitored and pressured to reach the, the guidelines that have been stated in the methods of the paper, rather than loosely leaving you to do whatever you like. So there is a bit of a misconception, a misconception because people hear lab and they imagine a bunch of people with lab coats. But in reality, if you came to the lab, you'd see myself and Milo dressed exactly the way we are telling you one more, one more. And when we were in New York now previously, there were, there were cases where the whole lab would turn and start shouting at the participants, you know, push more, push more. So it is a, an environment where people are encouraged to actually push to a high intensity. Yeah. And, and look, you cannot make someone go to failure if they inherently don't want to. They, and they can make it look like they're failing even, you know, if they want to try to fudge it and say, I just can't do another. But I, I would say with good, certainly in our lab, very good confidence that the majority go to failure. Uh, and I will say this too, at the end of our studies, we always do, we just ask them, you know, how, how was it, et cetera. Virtually to, to a participant, everyone says it's the hardest they've ever trained. So again, they're being pushed, they're being personally trained by trainers that are dictated to push people to failure. So yeah. Yeah. And the final thing I'll say on that note is, 
I do think the participants in the lab generally train at least as hard as people do in the gym. Like if you think that people in the lab taking part in a study, being supervised and often yelled at by research assistants and sometimes being incentivized to do the study properly, train less hard than people just randomly in the gym, somewhat interested in hypertrophy. I think you might be wrong. I think the people in the lab might actually be training harder, if anything. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm one-upping Milo by continuously adding stuff when he says this is uh, the the last thing I'll add. But uh, yeah, um, now I forgot what I wanted to say. So I'm going <laughs> to, that, that, that backfired. But uh, yeah, it will, it will come. It's all right. Yeah, I think like the like you said there milo like the meta-analyses that showed that people are like oh, on average one rep away uh, sorry yeah one rep from their rar prediction and so well maybe people are at a three versus a two uh, maybe they're at a one i'm sure some people push past the two when they didn't mean to maybe some of them hit failure <laughs> at points when they're many hit a two rar i'm sure that also occurs so we know they were very close to where they needed to be and hey if they're a little bit further away maybe the the relationship still shows the same kind of relationship in terms of like a dose response maybe like less sets you could argue um would have been required to see the same result if they were pushing that a little bit harder but it's like hey it's 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 certainly good enough in this scenario so pat go on yeah sorry what i wanted to add is a thing that we want to at least try uh is having a video footage obviously anonymized of participants in, in future studies uh, openly available so that people for, for further transparency and so that people can actually see what those uh, sessions look like. Obviously, that hasn't been possible yet because uh, there, there wasn't the appropriate clearance from the respective uh, IRB. And it's not a common practice, but I think that will definitely help a lot of people sort of feel a bit more confident about lab setting uh, sort of uh, experiments and the effort that participants are actually putting in these sets. Yeah, I think Martin... Refalo is looking at that now with his I think he's recording his participants as they're doing like a I think they're doing comparing like one leg at failure versus another leg at two RAR on the leg press which I've spoke to him about and he has some video footage so I think he might make that publicly available which would be really cool and uh yeah I, I agree with that pack for sure so yeah the next question I had and this kind of pertains to your guys's meme where it's like hey junk volume doesn't exist type of thing you're kind of um like obviously it's a meme you're kind of joking about it uh so yeah, what do you think to like junk volume? I have seen people put that into question. Do you think that is something people need to be concerned about? And do you think there was anything to, with such short rest periods, uh, people must have had to reduce the load, stand the rep range. They also talked about that within the paper. Uh, do you think there's a point where that becomes like such a low load where it's now no longer productive, no longer producing hypertrophy? And uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. I don't know if anyone has a particular take on either of those. Pack. Yeah, I'm 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 just a bit skeptical about the the idea that reducing the load will somehow water down the stimulus uh, as long as the intensity of effort and the proximity to failure are maintained. Um, and at the same time, I'm not um, I'm not really confident about the the criteria that is often uh, presented uh, when diagnosing junk volume and whether that's you know subjective or objective criteria about how you feel during a session so people will often say oh you're you're feeling tired you're not feeling the the muscle that you're supposed to be targeting so therefore this volume does not count for anything and it is actually hindering your progress but as far as evidence uh, as far as the current literature goes and again it's not just the study in isolation we do have uh, evidence that more volume will probably lead to more growth although it may not be an insane amount of, of extra growth 
I, I don't I'm not I'm not really sold on the evidence for junk volume being this sort of boogeyman that, that people make it out to be. Yeah. To caveat that a little bit, I think there's two perspectives you can take. The first would be looking at sort of mechanistic reasons to expect junk volume to be a thing, right? You could say, well, if we load if we drop loads below, say, 30% of your max, there is some evidence that on a per set basis, sets with less than 30% of your max will lead to less hypertrophy compared to sets with, say, between 30 and 85% of your max, right? Now, having actually done one of the sessions in the study, I can tell you I don't think that occurred. It might have, but I don't think it occurred. I don't think the drop drops in load were so substantial that some participants ended up below 30% of their one max. I think the other um, sort of mechanistic reason you can expect junk volume to be a thing is potentially based on some acute data on excessive muscle damage, for example, by Damas and colleagues, interfering with hypertrophy or hypertrophy signaling at least. And I think that might be generalizing too far if you're to take those too literally, right? Because in this study, for example, they were very much building up to those volumes. And so there's certainly going to be some muscle damage, but it seemingly didn't prevent them from growing more. And so I think that brings me to my perspective, and I think the most reasonable perspective on most topics. And that's when available to look at the intervention or longitudinal data we have, the applied data. So in this case, we have six studies comparing lower volumes between about 10 or 20 sets to higher volumes of about 20 or 25 sets or more. Within those six studies, we have three showing better hypertrophy with those higher volumes above 20 or 25 sets a week, and three showing, sorry, four showing better hypertrophy and two showing a null effect. So no difference between 10 to 20 sets and 25 sets and above. And so it certainly fits into the overall picture. And so you could say, well, mechanistically, we expect that there might be some issues with junk volume in these studies, what have you. But seemingly, these concerns aren't influential enough or maybe don't apply enough to override the greater hypertrophy you actually see. And ultimately, we don't care about necessarily muscle damage or junk volume. We care about growing more muscle. And if higher volumes grow you more muscle, then you can hypothesize all day about whether it's veering into junk volume territory or not. But we kind of care about growing more muscle, not about thinking too much about junk volume, I think. Yeah, so a couple of things for me here. Number one, as far as I know, junk volume is not a scientific term. So what is junk? And for me, if I, if you want to ask my definition of junk volume, it's volume that is not contributing to hypertrophy. That to me would be the, the ultimate definition, because if it's contributing to hypertrophy, it's not junk. Uh, whether your loads are going down or not, I don't think it's relevant if you're continuing to get hypertrophy. Now, certainly, uh, you're not able in the rest periods allotted, you, there's going to be a regression and you're, you're not keeping the same loads. Of course, we, in our study, and I'm sure in the uh, Ennis study, I don't think they talked about it, but you adjust the loads down as you, to to maintain your, your target rep range. Um, if the hypertrophy is still greater, it's not junk volume by definition, as far as, by my definition. If there's another scientific definition you have, I'm happy to entertain that. As far, and then as far as the muscle damage, again, just to go back to that, the Damas, the Felipe Damas paper was an untrained subject. So they showed that basically they were looking at the time course of muscle protein synthesis 
versus the actual accretion. And they showed that there was that at the beginning it didn't align because there was greater damage in the initial session. But then over time, there was no damage uh, that was experienced in these people. And then the muscle protein synthetic response seemed to correlate with the ultimate hypertrophy that was gained. There was another study I've seen, I remember on uh, Milo's and Pac's post, uh, which I shared, uh, that um, people were bringing up the Cody Hahn study about muscle damage. Uh, so Cody's a colleague of mine, by the way, a terrific researcher. And he did a study that was an accretion of volume starting at 10 sets up to 32 sets over a short six-week period. So they rapidly, it was the only other one that I know of that really worked at an increase of volume. They didn't have a control group. So they just had one group that progressed in volume. And uh, what they showed was that at 20 sets, uh, they, this is through DEXA, that uh, there didn't seem to be any extracellular water uh, effect, but that once you got past 20 sets, they showed that extracellular water had an effect on uh, on on the hypertrophy that, or I shouldn't even say hypertrophy because DEXA doesn't measure hypertrophy. It measures fat-free mass, which is an important distinction. Um, a couple of things about this, and I've spoken to Cody about the study. Number one, they measured the, uh, they did their DEXA measures 24 hours after their study. I, I would say that, all right, maybe there was at that point some latent fluid accretion, possibly. Um, you can't say, but it's possible. Number two, they used the formula to correct. Basically, they came to this conclusion through a formula that was derived in a study on untrained, not, not only untrained, they were not older individuals that were not resistance training for peripheral edema. So they were looking at peripheral edema, which is not necessarily within the intramuscular edema. I mean, it's peripheral edema. It can be anywhere subcutaneous. Uh, fluid as well, outside of anywhere outside of the uh, the circulation. Uh, so you can't, and it was never validated for the purpose of of uh, muscle damage and through muscle edema. So whether that actually was relevant, I, you know, I think that is highly speculative. And finally, in his study, even after accounting for that, there was still a an effect of uh, of uh, fat-free mass increases in the higher volume group. So again, a lot of these uh, things, it seems to me, uh, are people that just want to have a reason to try to dismiss the study. And uh, I think that's a really, if I can give my own perspective here, it's a bad thing that you see a lot where people, uh, we, we're scientists, I certainly Milo and Pack and, and certainly many of my colleagues, we're scientists. All we care about is seeking the truth. We see data, and it's oh, that's interesting. We, of course, you try to see, you try to criticize the study and find things that, you know, make you question it. But dismissing results because you have a bias towards it is is the most unscientific thing that you can do. And uh, that, to me, I think is one of the real issues and one of the challenges that we face as educators is trying to educate the public who have these preconceived notions that they don't want to let go of. Yeah. yeah. Also worth noting that the, the rest periods were a minimum of two minutes. And if you if you look at the manuscript when the, where they reported average times uh, taken to complete the workout, the, towards the, the last two weeks where volumes were the highest, the high volume group took approximately 100 minutes to complete the workout. Milo, 
when he did the workout and I was there working in with him took exactly a hundred minutes actually. So he took one hour and 42 minutes, but that, that was with me also working in. So he uh, essentially finished the workout. Yeah. So essentially what I'm trying to say, the participants of the study were probably resting even a bit longer than just a couple of minutes with a hard stop. Um, sure. And just to touch on the last comment by Brad, a lot of people also don't realize that if you wanted to market things or there was any sort of bias for higher or lower volumes, it's difficult to market and sell, hey, you have to do three hours in the gym and uh, spend more time training if lower volumes were as good or just slightly worse, uh, you know, be the first to, to promote that and be like, hey, that's the data. Yeah, I think this is, it's really interesting that the thought that comes to mind is kind of similar to uh, with the meta aggression that came out showing the relationship between kind of training to failure and hypertrophy. It was like, hey, kind of many roads to Rome type of comments were coming out from quite a few people and myself included. And it's almost here like, hey, if you have a, a shorter rest time, maybe therefore you need to do more sets. Whereas if you have a longer rest time, those sets are a little bit of a higher quality each. And maybe that means there is like a, a lower number that you need to see the same result. Your session length might end up taking the same time in the end. Cause I'm thinking about, uh, I guess you guys included a lot of your sessions. Typically, I guess your rest periods are, for legs are longer than two minutes between like a set of squats, for example. You can't discount that. I, I'm not saying that uh, we, we don't have good evidence of that, no. um, but could it be, I, I can't discount that that may be a factor. Actually, that's a question I had in hindsight. I don't know if uh, you guys have an answer to this. So what, what's your general prescription for rest times when you are coaching someone for hypertrophy? Do you have a preference there? Yeah, so I, I generally prescribe two minutes rest or sometimes even a little longer. It depends on how complex the movement is, but two minutes rest for your multi-joint exercises, usually around 90 seconds or so for, I, this is the hard uh, recommendation, 90 seconds or so for, or I say more of the general recommendations, 90 seconds or more for a single joint. In practice, it's auto-regulated for me when someone feels they're ready to go back. I don't sit there. To me, I think it's ridiculous, unless you're time-pressed or whatever, if you're a personal trainer and you need to get a certain amount of work in. That's one thing. But for me, when someone feels like they're ready, when I'm training, I feel like I'm ready for my next set. I go for my next set, regardless of whether it's 90 seconds or three minutes. Are you guys similar? Milo, you're nodding. Yeah, by and large, I think auto-regulation can occur pretty easily with rest times via performance. I think if you're able to get a reasonably similar set with two minutes rest, you can go, if you need three minutes to get a reasonably similar set, let's say, for example, you started with 225 for 10. For your second set, if you can get, say, eight or nine reps, I think you're ready to go. I think generally the data we have on rest times indicate that it's probably mediated by how much volume load you're able to get throughout the session um, rather than anything magical at long or short rest times. So I think if, you're, if you've rested long enough to get a decent quality setting again, you're ready to go. I would point this out too. So you'd say, well, why not just use auto-regulated uh, rest periods in uh, research? It, it, that would be a confounding variable then you try to so to really have a study that you can draw causality you want to control all your variables so if you want to just go for ecological validity yeah i'd say that would be a good approach but if you want to get efficacy establish efficacy which is looking at the ability to draw causality you want to try to standardize everything except your independent variable your your the variable that you're manipulating in this case would be volume so 
uh, people, again, they get people commenting on the internet who've never carried out a research study and they would say, well, just, you know, do something or whatever. And they don't understand the thought that goes in. Uh, they don't appreciate how much thought goes into a scientific study. Uh, again, Pack and, and uh, Milo are part of the team in, in our lab. When they know when we uh, are proposing a study, we kick this around, we post it on a Google Doc, and we we tear each other apart trying to figure out what is going to be the best way to carry out the study that will bring about the or, or best answer the purpose, the purpose statement uh, of what we're looking to study. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, my also prescription for rest times is the same as you guys with it being auto-regulated when that kind of target muscle that you're trying to aim for can be the limiting factor and not like you're breathing or something else like this and you can perform well. Uh, but it, it, I know actually, I think it's, uh, I think a lot of people within our space will consider longer rest times being superior to shorter rest times. It sounds like from what you said there, Milo, that kind of kind of understanding is actually put into question where the short rest times can actually be just as efficacious. Yeah, I think you can certainly make up for shorter rest times. And I mean, rest times as short as one minute, for example, if by simply doing more sets and session duration for the same hypertrophy effect may actually wind up being similar to as if you rested three minutes, you'll just need to do more sets, whether or not across an ecologically valid program, right? Where someone's training five days a week, a certain rest time is better because maybe if you're doing 10 sets with super short rest, that wears you out more and causes more fatigue for the same hypertrophy, we don't know. But at the very least, as long as you're willing to train for, say, half an hour, whether you're resting, for example, two minutes or three minutes, if you're just making up for the difference in time taken with more sets, if you're resting less time, usually I think you'll see the same hypertrophy. And by the way, I'd note too that one of my students, Avery Rosa, one of my master's students, did his thesis on it was an acute study, one minute rest, two minutes rest, three minutes rest. And uh, he looked at the squat versus the leg extension. Bottom line, there was no difference in the number of reps completed over the course of four sets between two and three minutes rest. One minute's rest did attenuate the uh, number of repetitions. And a previous study by Cassiano uh, showed the same uh, thing with the leg press, where two minutes rest and three minutes rest. So how long ultimately are you going to rest? You're going to rest four or five minutes in between each set? Yeah, that's it's really interesting uh, actually to like to think about it because at least anecdotally I know of like bodybuilders who love their short rest times and I look at them and I'm like, man, you're crazy. Like I need like four minutes after a leg press set and they're doing it after like two minutes. They're right in there. It's like, and they normally are those people with higher volumes and they like to do higher volumes and that sort of thing. And I guess the the Doctor Packs, the Mike Mensers, like your uh, lower volumes, you probably rest quite a while between some of those sets. I guess. <laughs> No, because you don't need to rest if you only do one set. <laughs> Every, you're resting all the time. It's beauty. You do you do your one set and then you continue. <laughs> the uh, So the next question I have is regarding escalating volume. So obviously within this study, every two weeks they increase sets. And do we think if you and Milo referenced the average sets, if we just averaged out and they just did those across the weeks, would that be, would we see the same results here or is there something to this weekly or every other week escalating volume? I don't know if any of you guys have a strong opinion on that. I'll take it for now. I think it, at present we can't rule out that adding sets week to week is going to be beneficial, right? I think uh, a lot of these studies have confounders, right? Like if you really wanted to see this study 
support your bias, right? You could say that it showed clearly that adding sets week to week was better for hypertrophy. I think that's mistaking the importance of different variables. I think the average volume is by far the most important variable here and less so potentially the fact that they added volume week to week or every two weeks rather. I think if you look at the systematic review by Hammer and colleagues, for example, that accounts for previous volumes and sees, okay, well, at least when you're increasing volume once, for example, on a step basis, right, they go from 10 sets to 15 sets, for example, does that cause more hypertrophy than just staying at the same volume? It doesn't seem to be the case consistently. And so while I think we can't rule out that it might be slightly beneficial, it doesn't seem to be at present something I can recommend widely for maximizing hypertrophy. I think certainly if you think you can recover from more volume and you're doing, say, 10, 15 sets a week, increasing your volume is likely going to increase your growth, but not because you're just increasing volume week to week, but rather because you're getting into a more productive volume, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, so I guess like the average is the key here and the way you go about it is less important, at least in your opinion. Brad, do you have a, a thought there? Yeah, so uh, the previous studies that have been carried out on the topic did not use progressive volume and showed similar effects. We did we had a study, there was a study by Radielli, uh, there was a study by Brigado. So there's been multiple studies that just segmented into different volumes uh, and did not uh, did not have an ascending volume pattern and showed fairly similar results to what they showed here. Um, but with that said, and I think I, I'm not disagreeing with Pat, uh, with uh, Milo, but I will say that I think there is a logical basis for it. Uh, so I, I'm not disagreeing with Milo, but I would say that at least, he, so here, here's my thought. Um, it provides an interesting perspective because we know the body thr can thrive when it's stress, has very high levels of stress for fairly short periods of time. But if those periods of time are, ext are extended, then ultimately the body seems to break down. I mean, that's a basic extrapolation of the general adaptation syndrome by Selye. Um, so could it be that if you segment volume, you have a period of somewhat lower volume, somewhat moderate volume, somewhat higher volume, uh, and then you go back and you regress and, and repeat, rinse and repeat, uh, that might promote uh, a greater effect. I certainly speculate that that may be the case. But as Myla said, we have no real good hard evidence to that. So I think this is a preliminary study. Uh, the Hahn study did show uh, some evidence, but that was a the design of that really did not allow for drone causality. It again only had one group and there was some weird results in that study. Uh, so I, I don't know what we can really draw from that. But this is the first study that did it in a controlled environment with a with a what we would call a control group. Uh, and uh, I think it just needs more study. I think that uh, so logical the logical basis is why we do studies. If something doesn't have a logical basis, why study it? But until you have multiple studies, it's way too early. My confidence in that, in saying that is very low at this point. It's it's purely like, yeah, I think it, it has a potential to be true, but uh, whether it is or not uh, remains to be determined. Yeah, and I think what we would really need in order to be able to make claims as to the efficacy of this method would be comparing two groups, one that stays at, for example, 20 sets a week, and then one group that progresses from 10 sets to 30 sets a week. But both groups should have the same average weekly volume. And so far, that hasn't been the case. So until we have those studies, I think this topic should be viewed with some caution. I think it, it probably won't hurt you, 
but I think we should be very cautious in saying it will definitely improve your gains. And and by the way, just to, to add to what Milo said, while I, I just made my own case, I can go against my case because there does not <laughs> seem to be any negative effects that have been shown, at least for the short period, so relatively short period of time. So at what point would you need to, how, how much can you push the body? One of the gaps in the literature, by the way, is that there has not been any midpoint testing. So we don't know, could the could each of these groups have, uh, certainly in our study, could they have peaked at, let's say, four weeks? We did an eight-week study and basically got nothing, or could they even have regressed? Uh, could they have actually started to show signs? We, In our discussions, and our talks, our exit interviews with the uh, participants, it didn't seem to be the case. Uh, in our last deload study, where we pushed the crap out of these subjects, virtually every subject to a man was like, no, I don't need another deload. I'm ready to I mean, we pushed them to failure. Literally, Pac, certainly Pac was in the lab for this. I mean, they were Smith five sets of Smith machine squats, five sets of uh, leg extensions, five sets of straight leg uh, calf raises, five sets of bent leg calf raises to failure. The Smith machine squats, most of them were going ass to grow. They basically just failed. They were Their butts are hitting the floor and they released the, uh, you know, the lever for the, uh, the bar. So... It's kind of weird, you know, just intuitively we would we talk about overtraining, but there's not really great evidence uh, of overtraining in the types of uh, ecologically valid routines that are that have been utilized. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, I think that's that's really well said and uh like it's kind of one of those research questions that we need to have looked at a bit deeper. Like you said, Milo, having that kind of research would be really interesting to kind of compare two groups of escalating or kind of and same average volumes, but static. And clearly there's lots of people uh, that I even know in the field. You can think of, I know, for example, like the guys at 3DMJ, Eric Helms, they are more of favor of generally static volumes. And we all know Dr. Mike and his escalating generally auto-regulated two volumes, which I've followed both and uh like people are getting great results and it comes back to that kind of uh many roads to roam potentially and it's trying to find the, the optimal path uh this actually brings me to another question which is somewhat similar to kind of uh, longer versus short rest periods in that kind of generally within these research studies I, I i think people question also not only how hard are people training how good is their range of motion but like kind of what's the tempo they're doing so I kind of had this question of, hey, you, you see someone like, again, Dr. Mike with like very slow controlled eccentrics, maybe pausing in a stretch position and really like focused on fatiguing that target muscle versus, I don't know, you could perform it in so many different ways. 
do you think that could also play a role? Like if your quality uh, within your training technique and ability to fatigue a muscle within each set could reduce the number of sets you'd need? Is that a factor you guys uh, would consider? I don't know, Pac, what is technique? <laughs> that is a good question. Um, but yeah, we're actually working on a project uh, on technique now and what is the optimal technique for essentially hypertrophy uh, as well as defining technique, which has not been done yet. But uh, and then, uh, it, is there an optimal technique for hypertrophy? Not what is, but it is there. Exactly. So as far as repetition tempo specifically, um, the, the, the current data shows that as long as repetition duration is around 0.5 to 8 seconds, uh, the hypertrophy outcomes are going to be similar. There is some limited evidence to show that um, if you are existing within that, that sort of uh, tempo range, having um, a slower centric, you know, maybe around a couple of seconds, maybe slightly better for hypertrophy although huge asterisk next to that so um some of the the practices that we often see being emphasized and promoted as surefire ways to maximize hypertrophy i.e really controlling the eccentric to the point where you're doing like we've seen on some of uh, the rp videos like four to eight seconds uh, of eccentric control there's currently no data to show that that's uh, more hypertrophic so all that to say um based on the guidelines provided in this study and based on the, the methods of the study i think tempo was just fine for maximizing hypertrophy yeah, so if you're talking about technique, tempo would be a component of it. Yeah. Uh, if you're talking about the kinematics of the exercise, uh, of their performance, I think that I can speak from personal experience. I wasn't in their lab, but you're going to get a wide spectrum. These are trained subjects, which generally we use, and their backgrounds are going to be very different. And some of them are going to have, quote unquote, perfect kinematics, perfect form, that if you look at it, you'd say, wow, that, that should be in a video, and others are not. Um, so it's the spectrum of people you'd see in the gym. That said, in a in a supervised environment, when we get them in the lab, that's corrected. If, if they were properly supervised, which I can only assume they were, uh, they would be schooled if they're not training. Now, there's going to be, everyone is ultimately going to have certain kinematics that they're better at where taller people might have a different squat pattern than someone else. But I mean, there's certain biomechanical principles they have to follow. And certainly the research assistant should be uh, making sure that their tempo is reasonably controlled. They're not using metronomes. We don't use metronomes, which would, in my opinion, have negative effects, which is why we don't use it. It would reduce the generalizability of these studies. And, and by the way, if you're going to use metronomes, when you start to get closer to failure, metronome is out the window anyway, because the rep's going to start, your concentric rep will start slowing down necessarily. So uh, I, I would just assume, again, without having been in the lab, that the research assistants were keeping the uh, subjects within the parameters that were established for the study. Yeah, I think that that's well said. Um, the only thought I had, I think you probably covered it, Pac, so to kind of so i've got it right you don't think there's anything to kind of that uh slower more purposeful eccentric with a pause and that wouldn't lead to maybe needing less sets versus someone performing them a little bit more rapidly you don't know yeah as it stands we don't have any any evidence to to show yeah. that it would make a huge difference i do control my eccentrics more than two seconds because i i just like how it feels but yeah, as far as making the case that, hey, they did not replicate these sort of practices that we see some bodybuilders uh, 
uh, do. I don't think that that makes a case for them uh, trading in an inferior way or whatever. By the way, sure. have a look at different bodybuilders. Go pro bodybuilders. Look at the differences in technique that they use. Take a yep. look at Jay Cutler versus, um, you know, Dorian Yates, let's say. And yeah, I mean, it's uh, so it's not just I, I was saying just the subjects we have, but it's technique varies a lot over even very well-trained individuals. Yeah, I think that's that's really well said. And that's kind of where I was coming from with the longer and shorter rest times. And then you see these people maybe having like very controlled technique versus people who are a bit more rapid and like they're both growing very well and clearly producing a stimulus there. And it's again, it's that optimization question. Like we don't have enough data to to know and answer that question just yet, which I, I think is, is completely fair. So uh, if we're good for the next question, this one is uh, the results showed a dose response in volume hypertrophy but one measurement showed diminishing returns, which was the sum of muscle thickness, and the other didn't show that, uh, the cross-sectional area. Do you guys think there is a dose response to volume hypertrophy? Um, and then I guess also re refer to the evidence at large. And I guess in addition to that, do you think there is diminishing returns? Is there that inverted U that is often referenced? I guess that comes to that junk volume question too. Uh, I don't know who, if any of you want to start with that one. I'm going to yeah. go Milo. Oh, no, go Brad. <laughs> so there most certainly is diminishing returns. Uh, I think it's, I don't really think it's arguable that low volume, that with relatively low volumes, you can get a majority. Most people can get a majority of their gains with relatively uh, minimalistic type of, of routines. So what we're talking about here is really applicable to the guys like yourselves and the people who want to optimize their muscle development. Um, now, when we're talking about one set versus three or four sets, there's you know a decent amount. But as you keep going up, certainly it is plateauing. And even in all the results, in our results, I mean, you see it is a plateau in the meta analyses uh, that we've done. You you see that as well. Um, but I think with that said, uh, you have to remember that um, if you're going to look at a dose response. You can't, you you have to look at only within the context of what the study showed. Uh, so to say that there's going to be an inverted U, I've certainly speculated this in previous papers. We've never seen, and this goes to my point before, that it actually starts to tail off. But the studies are relatively short term. I think what these studies actually do a, an interesting job of showing is that at the volume studied, you don't really see this drop off that they're going to have negative effects. So I think at worst, you're not going to see um, worse results. You're going to see similar results and you can see greater results. Um, I, I also want to point out though, that um, the overall volumes of these studies are not that high. So if you look at the total sets that are done for all the muscle groups, uh, they are not as high as what it's not like they were doing 52 sets for all your major muscle groups. So uh, I certainly would think if you're going to start to push volume, uh, you're going to start to, for all your muscle groups, you would start to see that regression. We've never, no one has ever studied that in the literature. And, and by the way, what, one other point I would make. Um, I, I know some people have said that, like, ultimately you're going to end up at the same place. Um like, well, yeah, you might get greater results to start off with. And uh, and ultimately, you're going to end up if you just, okay, so you'll get some greater results here. And then if you just 
slow and steady with uh, with low volumes, you're going to end up there. That's a silly argument. That's I mean, that's complete speculation that has never been shown. It would be like saying that, well, we're going to do a protein. We showed in a protein study that higher protein showed greater gains than lower protein. But if you just ultimately you you top out with the higher protein and then just keep doing lower protein and ultimately you'll you'll get to the same level. You could say that about any uh, outcome that you're studying that, hey, look, uh, this doesn't matter. It's a short-term study and that you'll ultimately get there. And, and that's unsupported by any uh, literature. And it's, uh, again, someone, people that say that are wishful thinking that that's what they want to happen. I'm not saying it, it can't be true, but there's zero evidence that that would be the case. Oh, Pat, you're muted. Uh, I wanted to say, Milo, uh, we we had that chat. Uh, I remember a while, and you had an interesting uh, perspe perspective on it. So essentially, what I, when we were, with Milo, we always discuss future study ideas. And those are way too many uh, in terms of what we can actually carry out. But the one thing we were discussing is whether over time those results would uh, would be the same. But and what was your perspective? Remind me. I can't remember, so you can remember it better than me. Apparently, <laughs> no, nice. <laughs> well, that's that, I guess. Thank you for tuning in. I will say, actually, real quick, one study we did speak about that I think would be interesting in the context of the discussion was eventually running a study where trained lifters are taken through relatively high volumes for their whole body. As Brad mentioned earlier, the evidence for overtraining or essentially training with so much volume and intensity that hypertrophy really takes a hit is actually sparse to non-existent, I think. And so I would be really interested to see in trained lifters, say even just tra 10 lifters, right? If they're training in the lab five days a week with say 20 to 30 sets per muscle group per week, pretty close to failure, how do we see their fatigue changing over time? Do we see that they actually lose muscle because of how much training over 10 weeks, let's say? Because this assumption, this, that's another limitation people have brought up, which I don't think is a huge limitation, but it, it is one of the better ones, I think, one of the better critiques, is that the people in the study mostly trained their quads. They did a few sets for the hamstrings at the end of the session, and they were free to train their upper body on other days, and they likely did, is my hunch, just based on running studies, you know, especially with trained lifters taking part. They're not just going to stop training upper body altogether because they're taking part in a study, not, that if, it, not if they can escape it, essentially. And so, yes, they were mostly training quads, but they were still training other muscle groups. However, there remains the question of can we actually train all muscle groups at once with relatively high volumes and still see a benefit? Obviously, there's a huge caveat there practically that most people simply don't have time to do this, right? If you're talking about doing 30 or 40 sets a week per muscle group for all muscle groups at once, you might be in the gym for 20 hours a week or more, right? And that's, that's a lot of time. But just on a more epistemic level, can we actually get away with doing 20, 30 plus sets a week per muscle group for every muscle group at once and see a benefit? Or do we just get so fatigued that we do not see any further hypertrophy? So I think that would be a study that would address some of the questions that still remain. Yeah, and I would add, I think it's a really good point by Milo. One thing that I think is really important is these studies are not meant to uh, gain a prescription for program design for all muscle groups. You cannot generalize this to say that 
Yeah. So this is showing 52 sets or even let's say on average 37 sets so that we can now prescribe. That's silly. That's there's no way anyone that understands how to extrapolate results from research would hopefully know that you cannot generalize beyond what the study showed. So take our, we did a, a volume study where uh, and people freaked out too, similar to, uh, to this study where the, uh, one group, so it was one set versus three sets versus five sets of seven exercises, three times a week. And ultimately it came out where the five set group was doing 15 sets of legs three times a week. So 45 total sets. The total amount of sets they did in a week was 105 sets. They trained four hours per week. So Steve, how many hours a week do you train? Yeah, way more than that. <laughs> so, so this is, again, this is, so you're trying to extrapolate, oh my God, 45 sets. It's a relatively modest volume overall for the total amount of, of sets that they're doing. So yeah, it never was designed to say that, yeah, you can, uh, this can now be extrapolated so that 45 sets per muscle is what you want to do. And I think that's a very important um, take home here is that what these studies I think do provide is insights into potential for specialization cycles for certain muscles. Uh, really, that to me would be the biggest uh, takeaway in something like this, or one of them, that uh, for segmented muscle groups, you might want to uh, increase the volume. And by the way, that doesn't mean you necessarily can use that 52 or, or even with always 45, because you then have to factor in the other volume of the other muscle groups that they're doing. Uh, I will tell you, I've never gone that high in prescribing because of just factoring in all the other volume. So volume to me has to be thought of in the context of the total amount of, of work that you're doing, the total amount of sets. And there's other factors too, where they multi-joint versus single joint. So what, you know, are you doing a lot of isolation work? These are all factors that need to be considered uh, than just people who freak out over seeing a, uh, you know, the results of a study and it, conflicts with their bias yeah and at, at the same time i think it's uh it's all it's also important to note that we have seen like I, I didn't understand why people freaked out so much when i mean recently like two days ago the youtube channel buff dudes uh, posted a video called i tried the tom Platt's leg workout 42 sets um it's like anecdotally speaking and from like hardcore lifters, we've seen much crazier um, sort of volume prescriptions for all muscle groups. And I think the study also lends itself well to the idea that unless you have a clear sign that you're overdoing it, you shouldn't worry that much about overdoing it. There's not some sort of magical mechanism where if you're not feeling absolutely fatigued and performance is regressing and you, you can't sleep, that you are somehow losing muscle because you did those extra two sets. Yeah, I think that's well said. The only thing I'd mention is uh, there was one person in the highest volume group that lost quad size. So I guess that sings to the, like, there is a limit for people. Uh, I don't know if that's if the, the way you guys feel about it, but it made me think maybe there's some individual differences, like in terms of volume tolerance that that showed. It could be. So it could be overtraining. It also could be nutritionally related. I mean, they could have had bad sleep. It could be a huge stress environment for them. So there's other, you got to remember that lifestyle factors in general, you can't, one subject, you can have outliers that can be for various reasons of outside of the routine itself. It could be, I'm not discounting. Uh, so I certainly wouldn't, 
I, I wouldn't put it past that it's possible that that would have been an explanatory factor, but it's important to realize that that can't just be attributed. There are other factors that all you can control as a researcher is what happens in your lab. Once they go, you try, as Myla talked about, they try to assess nutrition. They try to do certain things to provide greater control, but people are going to do what they're going to do. And when we get food diaries back, I look at some of the food diaries we're getting and I'm just, you know, I want to, tear my hair out with left it. uh, it's just uh crazy the you get a 200 pound uh male trained lifter who says he's eating 1200 calories and he gained five pounds of lean mass <laughs> makes no yeah. sense even in our minimum dose studies there was like i'm looking at the data now there was one participant that lost like five kilos on their bench press one rm strength and around 15 on their total it could also just be completely random so yeah, to touch on that, I think let's not single out the participant in the high volume group. If you look into pretty much every group for every measurement of muscle growth, you'll see at least one participant lost size and some participants maintain size. In any measurement ever during a study, there will be some variance, which means even if there's an improvement overall and more of an improvement in one group versus another, there'll be individual participants that regress or just maintain their muscle size. And that's totally normal. And I think some people online might, and obviously, don't get me wrong, there is obviously a an optimal volume that might be different person to person, right? But I think some people online have gotten, have sort of ran with this approach of, well, they provided individual data points for pre to post. So let's go ahead and really scrutinize those. And I think that's forgetting that variance is very much a thing. And reading into those results can really lead you astray, especially when you're talking about a sample size of 10 participants where variance is absolutely a thing. And I think that's kind of reflected in some people's interpretations of the percentage changes versus effect sizes, where some people get confused by, oh, well, the percentage change in one group was larger, but the effect size was lower. And that's because they sort of misunderstand how effect sizes are calculated. They're both a measure of how much did this group improve on average, but also how much variance was there. And so generally, you do see that there was greater variance in improvements in the higher volume groups. So it could be that with higher volumes, some people respond really well and some people respond a little bit less well. And there's just a bit more of a difference between people, right? But on average, it still seems to help people more, which potentially highlights the importance of fine-tuning volume to the individual when it comes to very high volumes. You might find that some individuals really don't respond, but on average, most individuals will see a more favorable response with higher volumes. Yeah, we saw that, by the way, in our volume study, that there were some subjects grew better than people in the... Now, again, there's other factors that we talked about, but certainly I I don't think it's even in question that some people, uh, that people obviously are different and that some people can grow better uh, with lower volumes. So uh, there there is always going to be an individualized component to this and that any study is only going to give you uh, an average of what's seen and people are not averages. So you then have to take the the results. And then uh, when you're trying to give practical advice on it, saying that, Hey, this is a general guideline for it. And you then need to experiment to figure out within your own genetics and your lifestyle, et cetera, what works best for you. Yeah. I think that's, that's very well stated. And the, the kind of thought of, Hey, this individual could have been doing some really malpractice in terms of trying to grow muscle outside of the, the study. I mean, you can't, you can't deny that at all. So you have to take that into consideration. I, I guess 
maybe f- uh, it would be really interesting to see another study for you guys, Milo and Pack. If like you have one one person do like one leg, certain number of sets, the other leg, another number of sets or arms, that would be really interesting to see if uh, that, that's you- been done. Oh, that has been done. That, that's been done in um, so it's been done in untrained subjects, but really interesting study by Hammerstrom, a uh, group, the Norwegian uh, Institute of Sports Science, did a study a few years ago. Beautiful study. I mean, one of the to me one of the nicest studies. They must have spent a ton of money on it. They had MRI. They did biopsies. They showed that volume, higher volumes generated greater ribosome biogenesis. So they were looking at molecular uh, factors, but the MRI. They actually showed the, um, they did an individualized uh, um, effects analysis and they did show that almost no, so some people did just as good on both sides uh, with the lower volume, but there was 40% of them respond, quote unquote, responded better. So it was roughly like 60% didn't really show much difference and 40 or 45%, I forgot the exact amount, showed an, a, an enhanced effect with the higher volume. And it was from, Six sets. This was a leg study, so uh, leg press and leg extension. They it was it did a little bit of an ascending, as I remember, but it was like six sets versus eighteen sets, and the eighteen sets showed a uh, greater effect on one of the legs in forty percent of the subjects. So that really does speak to that individualized effect. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess we're coming to like the the practical kind of advice for listeners now who are here and they're like, hey, what should I be doing? And we've kind of said, hey, it, it needs to be individualized and pack you kind of spoke to, hey, if you're you're recovering well and you're thinking maybe I could do a bit more, you don't need to be a, probably afraid about doing more. Do you have any kind of uh, prescriptions or way of doing this in practice with clients that you like to go about it? And actually, in addition to that, do you think uh, you're better off going for this sort of, hey, put some things on the back burner, really push volume on a muscle, or do you tend to think, hey, you could maybe just generalize this, push everything relatively high, not quite as high because obviously recoverability systemically is a thing and you're going to grow as well. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts to that. I don't know if uh, who wants to start on it. I'm going to go Milo, doctor. Hey, let's do it. So my first thought is, I think with some of the research about relative intensity, where I know you had Zach Robinson on recently, and I know Brad might disagree with me here, um, but I do think that generally the closer you push a set to failure, the more growth you see. Likewise, generally, the more volume you do, again, there's going to be individual differences, the more growth you see. There's been a lot of talk over the years by, for example, the good Dr. Eric Helms um, about an inverted U-shape volume, right? where at some point you see a plateau in how much growth you get, additional growth from doing more sets, and eventually that kind of gets worse. I think with this recent research kind of adding the overall body butcher, it doesn't seem like we've really reached it yet, right? It might be that the plateau starts occurring around 25 or 30 sets, or it might be that you actually start to see further growth, even past 25 or 30 sets. And so looking at both the effect sizes for hypertrophy as far as volume is concerned, as far as relative intensity is concerned, those two really seem to be the ones to have the biggest influence on hypertrophy. And from, as Brad mentioned earlier, the research we have on people doing, for example, 20 sets of quads to failure a week, right? In the deload study by Max Coleman, or this study, or a lot of studies where, keep in mind, in a lot of these volume studies, most or all sets are taken to failure. This recent one is a somewhat of an exception they still saw benefit in terms of growth 
to doing relatively high volumes of 20 to 30 plus sets. And so looking at, uh, and this is obviously very anecdotal and not my first recourse in reasoning, right? But I think it, it could sort of adds to the picture. When you look at a lot of successful bodybuilders training, they do really high volumes and often pretty close to failure. And so part of me thinks that based on this research, you should be pushing a little bit harder than previously, both in terms of intensity and in terms of volume, and see how you respond. Obviously, stay mindful of your fatigue, but there's a good chance at this stage that it's going to be beneficial for your growth. I think that's the general takeaway. And I think the the plateau as far as volume is concerned for hypertrophy might be closer to 30 or more sets a week. Yeah. From a just a purely practical perspective, um, I think starting somewhere in tw- 10 to 20 sets per muscle group per week sort of range and monitoring fatigue by things like soreness, session RP, and just also feedback from from, from a client will allow you to know whether you can push things more or, or less. But then what's, what's interesting is also people's um, sort of perception of volume and fatigue and perhaps... Uh, nocebo element with with some clients that come from certain backgrounds or are used to hearing certain things especially for milo and i who work with a lot of uh, people that consume evidence-based evidence evidence-based sort of content then you know you'll, you'll get clients that will argue wait i'm only doing 12 sets per week now is this is this too much is this too little i i read that i should be doing 25 sets and vice versa but starting somewhere in that range and working your way up from there uh, i think makes most sense versus going oh Let's start at 35 sets per week for everything and see if you if you make it a lever or not. But what I did in reality when the study came out, I went on over all my clients' uh, spreadsheets, <laughs> just typed 52 sets and called it a day because that's how Evident- science works. <laughs> Evidence-based. <laughs> Biased. <laughs> so, I, based, I mean, I don't think the study really changes much in the sense that it just adds to the literature that... Uh, similar studies and and kind of, I think, lends further support that on a limited basis for a given muscle group, there can be a benefit to quite high volumes. And that does seems not not to have a, we haven't seen the plateau really, or we've seen a, a level, it does certainly is leveling off, but it's not, you don't see where, certainly you don't see a regression. And uh, I was on the paper, by the way, with Eric, and that's been something that I've promoted for a while that there's this inverted U, it's in my textbook. And uh, we haven't seen it. But again, as I mentioned, we haven't had studies that have looked at all muscle groups with high volume. So you really have to take these studies with a grain of salt. They're really more, in my opinion, my humble opinion, proof of principle studies that show that for a given muscle, you can push them really hard with a lot of volume and see uh, some greater hypertrophy. Whether that is beneficial to an individual is going to be very dependent on their ultimate goals. I think for a bodybuilder, it's something they certainly would want to consider for the average individual is that extra time and spending an hour and 40 minutes. Probably not because uh, you can get pretty close to that uh, with you know substantially lower volumes and get out quickly. Uh, if you're asking my own approach, it's not certainly this would not change it. None of these studies really have that I still think. 10 to 20 sets is a generally a good uh, foundational guideline to use. When I have worked with um, high-level bodybuilders, that's kind of the general area that I start, you know, look to start usually more on the lower end. Some people maybe even a little lower. And then I have used what, one thing that these studies have done from my perspective is gotten me more in tune with utilizing specialization cycles. 
Uh, so for lagging muscle groups, I will and have uh, with some very high level bodybuilders. One of them uh, recently won his pro card is uh, classic physique pro card, IFBB. Uh, Joe Tolby, shout out to Joe. Um, but uh, yeah, but where you would look, you assess what is your weak points and uh, and give higher volumes. Now, with that said, I tend to also look at, as I mentioned earlier, total volume of all your sets. So basically, you'd want to look at how much work you're going to do for your whole body and then try to assess, you know, what is the, are these really high, high level exercises, squats and uh, rows, et cetera, or are there more leg extensions? So what's the mix? Usually it's going to be a general mix. And then when you increase volume for one muscle group, I, I kind of use the analogy of a volume budget where you have a certain amount of volume you can do for your whole body. You then want to decrease volume for muscles that are more well-developed. So you stay, you don't take your, your volume where you're just going to keep increasing it. And, uh, Again, we this is not this is really the art of training, not the we're taking I take the science and it's just one perspective. How people go about this is very individualized. So we can all look at the same studies and come away with our own perspectives based on our own personal biases and our own training philosophies, et cetera. But uh, I think to this point, uh, the as I mentioned earlier, the one thing we don't want to do is to use these as prescriptions for uh, how many sets you should be doing because they can't give that information. And um, I think we have a lot of anecdotal evidence that the Milo says make good 30 sets. Uh, and, and look to Milo's point too, the old school bodybuilders. So he mentioned um, um, who, who Tom Platts, Tom Platts, right. The Tom Platts leg workout is 50, you know, close to 50 sets for the legs. Uh, and the old look, Arnold was doing 240 sets a week or something or more double splits. I mean, they were literally an hour and a half to two hours in the morning, an hour and a half to two hours at night, six days a week. Sunday yeah. was for, for the beach and for women. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, could, could that be that there's a higher threshold? Maybe, but I think in natural lifters, I think erring on the side of caution probably is beneficial. You don't want to push people too far. Uh, where those, uh, it's always going to be individual. A study is never going to give you individual prescription as to where that line is crossed between training and overtraining. Yeah, I think that's really well described. So just kind of thinking about, hey, start probably towards the lower end of that general 10 to 20 set guideline for people. And I think, Pack, you outlined some useful kind of auto-regulatory kind of things you could use in terms of hey make sure you're recovering on time if you're recovering days before hey maybe the if you're feeling good you can probably experiment with a little bit more volume uh things like this then you can experiment over time and see how you're doing and you'll probably kind of reach that limit at some point and need to pull back and like you said there brad you can even use this in cases where if someone's like hey, I have tiny arms then you can kind of bring some volume down and really see and push the limits there on your arms and see how things go. So yeah, I, I like that you said, hey, this study isn't kind of completely changing the game. In fact, it's kind of reinforcing where our minds were in, in many ways because of the previous research that is there, which is kind of, it's, it's confirmed lots of things that we've been thinking about for them. And I guess we need some research on like 52 sets plus <laughs> now to like find that uh, inverted U uh, for I, everyone. <laughs> hey, but I, I'd actually push back and I'm not sure what that really would show even. I mean, because again, it's looking at 
at training volume in a vacuum. So, you know, we've shown, it's consistently, there's been a number of studies showing that higher volumes are effective, but it's still not going to, I don't think it's answering the question that you want. And Milo talked about that really, if you want to look at prescription for all the muscle groups, you'd want to look at higher volumes for all the muscle groups where they're spending eight, 10 hours, 12 hours in the gym. Those are very difficult studies to carry out. First of all, I can tell you, you'd need massive manpower to do that and probably take a couple of years or maybe multi-site, probably if you could do a multi-site study. But um, I I also think, you know, to, uh, well, Milo, you, you did the, uh, the workout. What did you, what did you think? Yeah, so to clarify, both Pack and I attempted it. Um, Pack called it quits after the squats because he was feeling extremely nauseated. And I'll kind of second the whole experience, which is in terms of difficulty, if 10 out of 10 was truly the hardest thing I could possibly do as far as a session went, it was like an eight. So it was very challenging, right? It was it was not easy. But keep in mind, both Pack and I came from a background of doing like 10, 15 sets of legs a week, maybe. And so we roughly increased that by five to 10 times in terms of per session volume, just going into that session and we were unprepared. So it was rough. It took, as Pac mentioned, about an hour and a half, just over an hour and a half to do. Um, I think the low rest times caused for a big load drop off. So I started with, I think like 355 or 335 for eight reps on squats. And then by the last set, I was using 185. So I, was, I literally dropped load in half. Right. Um, by that point, though, I think the low drop off essentially stopped because of how fatigued I already was. Right. Like there's a kind of like a, a hard cut off to how fatigued you can get, I think, provided you have some rest between sets. But it was it was very challenging. And I think Pat can kind of give some more insights on how that went. And the soreness was, as you'd expect, if you're un, unaccustomed to those volumes, it would have a big effect. But equally, I think in the study, I wouldn't be surprised if they, by the end they weren't all that sore on account of gradually increasing volume and using the same exercises all throughout. Whereas for me, I hadn't done full range of motion squats in a while. I hadn't done full range of motion leg pressing in a while. I hadn't done full range of motion leg extension in a while. So it was all very normal. Yeah. I came in with uh, my previous... So I started squatting, I think, four weeks before the that workout. And I was doing about four reps per week. So... Um, of squats, no leg extensions, no leg press. And for the past year, I've been doing like the odd set or two for quads just to maintain them because I've been specializing on the deadlift. And to be honest, I, I didn't want to train legs because I didn't care much. But um, yeah, it was the fact that I was still able to do nine sets. And keep in mind, Milo and I also did a session uh, a couple of days before just to get somewhat accustomed to this so we don't completely destroy ourselves where we did, um, what was it, two or three sets of six to eight reps? two sets and i mean that's 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 not really acceptable here in british culture milo but uh yeah we did two sets of squats and even those before the actual workout had us had had a sore i actually got sore during the session and the fact that i still managed as a you know 235 uh, pound man to still get through the squats and yeah i was very sore and it was very hard uh, but that was the highest volume the people in the study did after three months of working up to and doing a familiarization phase as well and so on and so forth. So yeah, definitely the end of the study was hard, but I don't I don't get how I don't get why people overreacted so much and thought it was impossible, especially if they are trained lifters and 
especially train lifters who have done, you know, crazy things in the past. We've all done our 10 by 10s and our, you know, in powerlifting, small off and, you know, squat every day. And people are happy to look at those things or other extreme studies. Okay, I'll go on a bit of a rant. I mean, people, uh, James Fisher has uh, cycled for 400 kilometers. People do ultra marathons. People do Tough Mudders. Uh, Roger, the, the editor from uh, Human Kinetics, does these crazy obstacle the days where he's out there for 12 hours, climbing, running, sprinting, swimming. And it's like, is it that crazy that a bunch of people in a controlled environment did a high volume leg workout after consistently doing um, leg training for three months? I don't know. Yeah, the, the one thing that uh, I have been is really profoundly impressed me from the research over time is that humans can be pushed way beyond what they think they can do, particularly if you have someone who is pushing them. Uh, so uh, we carried out a supervision study um, recently. My colleague, uh, my former student, now colleague, uh, Max Coleman, uh, led it. And uh, basically, it showed pretty big differences when people are left to their own devices, what they do. Uh, the supervised group had substantially greater hypertrophy and, and strength to some extent. Um, but when you have, uh, as Pat mentioned earlier, a research assistant who is over you, and I think Milo mentioned too, and just saying, come on, you could do another push, push. People push uh, and, and they get through things they never thought. I guarantee you that the, the participants that we have, many of them, they never, they come into the study never thinking that they're what they're getting themselves into. And when they actually do it, they thrive. Uh, so the body is is very resilient. It's very able to um, to adapt when pushed. And I think this is uh, really the beginning, hopefully, of starting to understand what are the limits to what people can do. Uh, and I would just speculate based on what we've seen, it's far beyond what we've thought. Yeah. And I mean, have you not seen like training of like uh, martial artists or like combat fighters? These people, they're there's some extreme things that they do consistently or people in like special forces where they go through months of excruciating training where they're sleeping like an hour a day and they're, they're there and they're they're I, I, yeah, it was, I don't know. I don't get it. The human body can do much more than the 26 uh, workout uh, set workout that was done twice in that week. Yeah. I think that's, it's very well said. And I mean, uh, if people have pushed their limits, then they kind of know for themselves, like, hey, maybe you would break down uh, if you tried this. But I mean, it was a very specific case, like you guys mentioned several times, it's like specializing on the quads. They had a familiarization phase, they were building up to it. So I don't think anyone in practice looking at this is training this way. And it reminds me, just as a complete tangent, uh, I, well, it's not really a tangent, it's similar. I looked at an old training program and I looked at my set volume for back when I was trying to specialize on it and I was doing 72 week, uh, 72 sets <laughs> uh, before my like deload week. And I was like, how the hell was I doing that? <laughs> uh, and it, like, I'm, I was, sh I mean, sh certainly trying to train hard and everything like along those lines, but I think it's, it's just one of those things. And I think probably a lot of people looking at it, they do a lot of things right in terms of making sure their set quality is very, very high. And so they may be a little bit more advanced. And so they do get extra fatigues from some of these things. And I mean, if they're not, it's like you guys have said, like maybe try pushing yourself even more. And Milo, you kind of pointed to that, like, hey, like more volume tends to lead to more growth. Training a bit closer to failure tends to lead to more growth. Like, hey, maybe edge towards that direction. And if you already are there and you're like beat up all the time, you're having to deload every other week, it's probably too far. But if it's every like, hey, 
month, two months, like you're probably already in a really good position here. At least that's my kind of thoughts from everything that was discussed today. 100%. I can keep, I can keep giving uh, random anecdotes and examples of people <laughs> doing more extreme things if you if you wish. <laughs> guys, I just a massive thank you for you guys coming on here and discussing this. I think people are going to really enjoy it. And uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully everyone's following Milo pack and uh, brad schoenfeld but if they're not i want to give them, i know brad's answer is amazing and it's uh, google me which uh, uh literally google dr brad schoenfeld and he will come up and you'll be able to find him he's also that's on instagram and it will be linked below but uh have you guys got any uh, new links or anything i know you guys are running your podcast um so that might be they're listening to a podcast here they might want to hear more from you so maybe give that one a, a shout out go on my <laughs> Go on, Milo. <laughs> yeah, if you want to hear more evidence-based fitness content, then please check out Muscle and Feels. That's Muscle and Feels. That's my podcast with my good friend, Dr. Pack. So check it out. And you can uh, Bing Milo and you can duck, duck, go me if you wish to use alternative search engines to, to Google. But, uh, <laughs> Amazing. I'll make sure all your kind of Instagrams and your social medias are, are linked and obviously the, the podcast and uh, Brad's, of course, as well. And again, thank you. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you soon. Peace. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicup so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.